0: This episode is one that I have been looking forward to for a long time. And I should say at the start that I owe credit, and Mark, too, uh, to our dear friend, Gail Agarwal, for making this possible in introducing us to Kevin Washburn, who is the dean at the University of Iowa School of Law. And for those of you who are in law schools, you know how incredibly busy, and I should say horrible, of a job it is to be a dean, particularly during a pandemic. But uh, Kevin is one of the leading experts on gaming law as related to uh, tribes, maybe the leading expert. So we're super grateful that he has taken time out of his so ridiculously busy schedule to come and talk to us about our many, many questions. So Kevin, welcome to our little podcast.
1: Thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me
0: not at all. We we have so many questions. uh, We'll run out of time very quickly. But I was wondering, Kevin, if you might give us a little bit of background on your connection with this area and how come you've gotten so interested in this and are willing to talk about it, even though You know, you must have a million other things to deal with today.
1: No, you bet. Happy to do it. So first of all, I'm Native American. I'm a member of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, and I grew up in Oklahoma in what is now considered an Indian reservation. We didn't know that it was at the time, but um, because of the McGirt decision by the Supreme Court a couple of years ago, it's now clear that where I grew up is an Indian reservation. But at any rate, that's a different question. I, so I went to, um, you know, college and law school. And um, when you go to law school and you're Native American, people say, you know, are you going to help your people when you graduate? <laughs> and You know, it, it's sort of, you know, it, you get tracked in a certain direction. And so you can't say, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to Wall Street or no, I'm going to, you know, do something else. It's, you know, that's a hard question to say no to. So I've been doing federal Indian law for my entire career. I was a federal prosecutor for a while. I was, Um, um, at the Environment Division of the uh, Department of Justice for a while. Um, But um, my last government job before I became an academic was being general counsel of the National Indian Gaming Commission, a small federal regulatory agency. And that's where I really kind of got interested in gaming law. And I've been an academic for much of the time since then. I was taught at Minnesota and Arizona and a year as a visitor at Harvard and um, was the dean at the University of New Mexico and now the dean at Iowa. And so it, I I, I've, I know a lot, you know, I've, I've got several areas of Indian law that I focus on, but um, this is one that's so important because it's how you know, economic development is so important for Indian tribes, and um, this is an important aspect of economic development for tribes. It's where they get financing for some of that development, and um, there's just a greater focus lately. I was recently um, named a legal policy fellow for the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, and it's because they're interested in these kinds of issues. So I've been focusing more and more and more on them, and um, I find them fascinating.
2: So, Kevin, I'm wondering if that's a good uh, jumping off point for y- me to ask you to give us a bit of background in general about uh, borrowing by uh, tribal governments, uh, both in connection with, with Me um, uh, Too and I are have a particular interest in uh, bonds issued by casinos, but um, uh, more broadly by tribal governments in gener- general. So I, as I understand it, there's a really extensive of backdrop of regulation, maybe bordering on interference in some ways by the federal government that limits the ability to borrow. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a bit of a bit of context about capital raising by tribal governments in general.
1: You bet, um, and it's it, it, the bottom line. Is it's very challenging. So one thing that you know many tribes have is land. Um, they've they've got you know something like five percent of the surface land of the United States is, is you know constitutes Indian reservations. And tribes don't own all the land within Indian reservations, but but they own significant lands often within Indian reservations. And the problem is they can't they can't pledge that land as collateral. That land is usually held in trust by the federal government is not alienable. So tribes can't do what, you know, many Americans do, which is pledge their, you know, their home um, as collateral um, for for financing. So that's one of the challenges. Another challenge for tribes is uh, related. Uh, They don't have generally much of a tax base so that explains why there's no property tax base for indian tribes right if you you know that there's no they they can't that land cannot be taxed um, by the tribes so because it's, if it's held in trust uh, by the federal government and um, they would be taxing themselves anyway in, in most instances so that's one of the challenges they also don't tend to have income tax bases or, or, or significant sales tax bases so that makes them different than other governments so and, you know so they don't have revenues to pledge either in many in many circumstances and one exception of that is gaming which we will talk about later but that's one of the challenges for tribes so tribes don't have a lot of collateral to, to post up if they want to if they want to borrow and that's sort of one of the fundamental problems for tribes
0: so Kevin um, there, there's just so much so much here but they're following up on one part of Mark's question, but actually I I have uh, two questions that follow up on uh, Mark's. One is uh, the bit about tribes being in this subservient position to the federal government vis-a-vis raising capital. So my understanding is that tribes can Uh, raise capital in a tax-exempt status uh, similar to municipalities, uh, but that unlike uh, municipalities in the 50 states, uh, tribes are, are constrained quite a bit in terms of having to use the funds for a narrow set of purposes that uh, maybe are uh, approved or supervised by either the IRS or the maybe the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I, I'm embarrassed at my lack of knowledge, but I, I'm just sort of surprised at why the tribes are put in this super dependent uh, status when they are uh, supposed to be sovereigns or quasi-sovereigns. And also why their ability to raise tax-exempt monies is uh, so constrained. You did bring up the point about collateral, but 99.9% of sovereign borrowing, uh, maybe this is not true with municipal borrowing, but at least sovereign borrowing is done without collateral. and The reason for it being done without collateral is that You know, it's really near impossible to seize a sovereign's assets. So I understand that is true with the tribes, but that's also true uh, with the Republic of Belize or the Republic of Argentina. So uh, I'll stop there. Yeah.
1: No, th- th- those are those are great questions. Yeah, so so that's right. Tribes can issue some tax-exempt bonds, that, that, like muni bonds, but only for essential governmental services. Um, and tr- states don't and county, you know, city governments don't have that limitation. So a city government, for example, can finance a, you know, a baseball stadium or a convention center using um, tax-exempt bonds. Tribes cannot do that. Tribes um, can, they, they can get permission to issue tax-exempt bonds for essential government services, which would be like roads or hospitals or child care centers or schools or something like that, um, public buildings for governmental administration, those sorts of things. But they cannot, you know, they can't do what cities and municipal governments can do, um, with bonds in that way. Um, they're limited, more limited. They have tried using local governments as conduits, conduit financing, using tax exempt bonds and the IRS, um, found that, um, invalid. So the, that, that deal went bad. And so, um, but yeah, so they're limited. So why is that? Um, that's a, that's a great question, you know, and this is, I won't, belabor this, but our founding fathers were geniuses in some ways, but they really just punted on a lot of the issues related to Indian tribes. And so what are tribes is a really good question. I mean, what are tribal bonds is a good question. And perhaps I should ask you you all that. I, You know, we have corporate bonds, we've got municipal type bonds, and then we've got international finance, you know, international debt transactions, sovereign debt. you know, which which category would you put tribal bonds in? and and is is international sovereign debt? is that considered public finance or is that more you know, it's um where you know where in which category should tribes go? And I'm not sure the answer to that because they're similar to each of those, but different in many respects to each of those. And part of it is, as you alluded to, is the fact that tribes are, we don't really know what tribes are. Chief Justice John Marshall famously said, well, they're not foreign nations, but they're not states either. They are, what he said was, domestic dependent nations. They are nations, they are sovereigns, but they are they are indeed dependent sovereigns. They are in, in something of a subservient role, that, and that role has frankly changed over the years. It's um, ex- expanded and contracted, I guess I would say, in, at times in American history. But part of this is we just don't, you know, the financial markets maybe aren't sure exactly what tribes are, and, and neither is the government.
2: So I I wonder, I mean, this is, you ask a question that is, I think, really hard for for me to answer, even in the context of sovereign bonds. And I suppose sort of a, a first cut at an answer might point to two different Variables, and I think these are these maybe are interesting in in our context as well. So, so one simply would be the variable of whether there's some kind of bankruptcy system as a as a backstop, and and that's something I'm interested in in um, talking to you about here. But the other is the notion that if you're sovereign, you at the end of the day get to make the rules. And so then people would start to distinguish between, you know, the United States is borrowing, which is really sovereign because it's all under U.S. domestic law, and you know Argentina is borrowing, which is a bunch under its domestic law, but a bunch under um, foreign law. And under uh, the foreign law bonds, it you know in some ways it's less of a sovereign than it is when it borrows under its domestic law. So I, one of the things that that I find so interesting is in looking at many of the prospectuses for the bonds issued, sort of gaming-related bonds, there are these really sort of unclear risk factors about whether bankruptcy is an option. Maybe I'll just stop there and ask about the status of bankruptcy in the context of tribal bonds, and then we can move uh, later into things like sovereign immunity. Is there a bankruptcy process? What and what does it what would it look like? Yeah, generally not. There generally is
1: not a bankruptcy process at the tribal level and tribes cannot uh, engage the U.S. bankruptcy system. You know, a a municipality, I believe, can can go bankrupt Um, and and states can have their own bankruptcy systems for things that don't fall within the federal system. But usually, yes, in these prospectuses and bond indentures and that sort of thing, tribes have to waive the right. They have to issue a covenant, I believe, to agree not to adopt a tribal bankruptcy system, Um, because, you know, so they so I, I think that's a common covenant. And so tribes cannot engage the bankruptcy system. Um, So that makes them different from, you know, state and local governments in some respects and corporate, you know, bonds, uh, for example. Um, But they're different than sovereign nations, too, in that, you know, most of the most of the countries you all are talking about on the podcast with regard to sovereign debt. Most of them issue their own currency, right? And um, tribes don't issue their own currency. Um, that you know that so so they're not really like foreign sovereigns in the way, you know, the, the, a lot of the things you deal with on this show. They've got some quite you know some big differences. So, uh, but the bankruptcy one is a is a problem. And um, I guess the way I always think of this is. You know, in any in any financial transaction, but particularly in bonds, there are economic risks and there are legal risks. And, um, you know, my sense is, is that people perceive that the legal risks are higher with tribal bonds. Um, You know, they can assess the economic risks. um, But but, you know, what's the recourse? What happens if things go south? Um, the market, I think, generally is a little bit less clear and less comfortable with with the set of laws that applies here because they aren't as familiar with them as they are with, for example, federal securities regulations generally. So tribal finance, you know, sort of sends you into this complex area of federal federal law, and a lot of people, I think, are not comfortable with that. It's called federal Indian law, by the way.
0: This brings up to me. Part of the reason why Mark and I are so interested in this and sought you out, actually, you know, I should tell the story. I, I was so frustrated in preparing materials for our sovereign debt class that uh, Mark and I both teach, sometimes together, sometimes separately, uh, because this term, I had some students who specifically asked whether we could look at uh, tribal bonds. I was embarrassed. I, I didn't know anything about tribal bonds. I, Mark and I have both worked on territorial bonds, and specifically those of Puerto Rico, but I, I didn't really even know that there existed tribal bonds. But when you think about it, it makes complete sense. They are at least partially sovereign territories. They are economic units that need to fund economic development. And so you would expect that they are borrowing from the capital markets in order to fund growth. But that, that's what sovereigns have done a uh, time immemorial. And without the ability to borrow, uh, economic growth uh, would be severely constrained. Now, once you have all of the economic theory in place, Then it's really puzzling when you go out and look at the databases and you can't find tribal bonds. I mean, it was worse than pulling teeth to try to find even a couple of tribal bonds. And, you know, we were really limited to finding a couple of tribal casino bonds, which begs the question of why is financing for the tribes, so severely constrained given that they really need the financing, one would think, to fund economic development. It's not as as if they are uh, highly uh, developed subsets of the country that do not need financing. Now, all of this is a long-winded way of saying that uh, you did bring up the point of, you know, people don't know about this market, the the, the law is kind of messed up. But that's what we do. I, I mean, Mark and I have spent decades trying to work on reducing legal risks in the sovereign context, and we know that one can reduce uh, legal complexity and legal risk and legal confusion in a manner so that raising capital is slightly cheaper or slightly uh, easier. These are things that we learn to do. And it, it seems like in the tribal context, when we, Mark and I talk to investors or people involved in the markets, they say, oh yeah, it's just really confusing. And nobody knows if bankruptcy applies or not, or nobody knows how much sovereign immunity they have. And as if it's a state of the world. And But that that just can't be true. These are all things that sophisticated or even unsophisticated lawyers could improve and improve the ability to raise capital. My apologies for going on that rant. It's it's, it's just so frustrating to see that regions of the country that need uh, development financing the most are also the most constrained, it seems like.
1: Well, I, you know, I guess the cynic would say, you, you know, <laughs> You, you have to have money to make money. And, and to some degree in the United States, I think that's true. And so, you know, until tribes had revenues available, you know, they weren't going to get financing. And so really a lot of the bond financing, well, I think all of the bond financing started after tribes developed Indian gaming. And um, and it started in like Indian gaming started in the 70s and, and 80s, but really kind of came on strong in the 1990s. And so the first bond offering, tribal bond offering by a a tribe was in 1995, and it was for uh, roughly $175 million, and the rate was 13.5% for that bond offering. That was the interest rate, plus there was some participation interest that drove the rate up to, I believe, in excess of 17% interest rate. So... You know, I think the reason those rates were so high, especially with that deal, was it was the first one ever, and there was a lot of potential, you know, uncertainty and legal risk. The rates have come down from that since. Um um, as have all interest rates, by the way. So maybe, and I'm not sure if this is um, causation necessarily, but I actually think that people are getting more comfortable with what the legal regime here is and um, getting to understand it better and figuring out how to contract around the risks. And the lawyers have gotten engaged and, um, and um, I think they, you know, they're they addressing those legal risks over time to some degree, but I still think you know, you're right. I think that there's a limited market here and it's not a very public market, and that has some costs. I think. I think that's. I think that's maybe part of your
0: point. You know, it it is. I mean, if if the tribes are doing what I suspect they're doing, which is largely being limited to bank finance, then just. I mean, that means they're probably borrowing sort of in these five-year syndicated uh, loan uh, structures, which is not very good if you have a let's say, a 30-year horizon for funding a hospital or a school or uh, entities like that. I mean, Mark and I have studied the history of sovereign debt financing enough to know that while bond financing does result in defaults, that it it is crucial for long-term development. And if you look at the variety of countries out there, it's the poorest and the least developed Uh, who are not able to access the international bond markets, and therefore they're not able to fund long-term financing. And, you know, one would think that the current administration would care deeply about this. This is not, this is, this strikes me as not such an incredibly difficult problem to solve and uh, would be super helpful uh, to at least put, some of the minds that our current president has uh, brought into the administration to working on solving or ameliorating this problem, but I'm ranting again, and uh, we should go uh, to a break uh, now, and then we'll continue with our uh, many questions about this. So let's go to a break.
2: Kevin, I wanted to ask um, a follow-up question, I guess, about what I'm going to characterize as maybe the the immaturity of the the market for tribal bonds and tribal casino bonds in in particular. Uh, Maybe that's not the right characterization and and you can tell me, but um, one of the things that strikes me is that, so we've talked about the kind of legal risks that uh, investors might perceive. And one of the things that strikes me is in lots of other settings where there are lots of legal risks, you see a basically a bifurcated market where investors are offered one type of bond that exposes them to tons of legal risk. So in the sovereign context, that would just be the purely local, local currency, local law, local courts bond, through which most countries get most of their financing. And then there's this Kind of smaller part of the market that's the the bond for people who want to manage legal risk um, and other kinds of risks so the foreign currency foreign law foreign courts all of that stuff the, all of the tribal casino bonds i've looked at fit into that latter category it's as if there is no uh and so part of this maybe is the lack of a robust uh, internal market but um it seems to me there must be more to it than that. It, it strikes me as odd that their investors seem completely unwilling uh, to take legal risk in this context when they don't seem to care and so many others. Am I, am I right about that? Is, is this, does this strike you as, as odd as well? Uh, and if so, is it a function of like lack of familiarity or a function of the limits the federal government has put on tribal borrowing in general?
1: Well, that's that's a great question, and I I don't know the answer, actually. Um, I I think that probably, you know, tribes are, there are 574 tribes in the United States, and, um, you know, many of them have only a few hundred members um so these are not you know as governments some of them are quite small and they may not have a you know (laughs) a a large taxation and revenue department or something like that that's going to focus on these things there's some very sophisticated tribes that do have those and are are doing this sort of thing so you know my own tribe has issued tax-exempt bonds Uh, um, i'm not sure they've issued um you know gaming revenue bonds or anything like that, but they've certainly issued um, tax, you know, tax exempt bonds for a hospital and that sort of thing. Um, So I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know if they know what the, you know, if there's a large market for that sort of thing. And I I don't know that any tribe has gone there. That's right. I'm not aware of that. This strikes me that it's more like the corporate bond kind of market where, you know, you you go out and do a road show and you try to get big, you know, big time investors. And I don't know if, you know, municipal governments and are doing road shows. I, I know Janet Yellen's not going out on the road <laughs> to sell treasury bonds you know, so I, I, this, that seems to me more like a corporate culture kind of thing. I may be wrong about that. You would know better, but it is, um, it, you know, it is, there's a lot of, um um yeah, the, these are all very highly you know carefully structured legally regulated you know risk ameliorated type type bonds with extensive disclosures and unusual disclosures because the risks are so different. We talked about some of those so one another risk is that you know, ordinary contracts, bond contracts, they're, they're just contracts, right? They, they, they don't generally fall under federal question jurisdiction for federal courts. So you can't necessarily get into federal courts with a bond deal that goes bad. Um, you know, And you think, well, maybe diversity jurisdiction, but tribes are not considered a citizen of the state where that they are in for purposes of diversity jurisdiction. So you can never sue a tribe under diversity jurisdiction. So that leaves you, well, what's the forum? And um, you know, there are problems with state court forums, in some cases for tribes. So all of that stuff has to be identified and addressed in a in a trust indenture or the other documents um, to make these you know these deals enforceable. so so Mark, I, the bottom line is I don't know the answer to your question, but there is this large overlay of um, federal law that that you know that may imp- implicate it as well.
0: I mean, it seems like I, I'm not gonna rant this time. I promise. But it seems like from what you said and what Mark was saying about the utter confusion about whether tribes are entitled to uh, bankruptcy protection or not, we, we were all reading some of the risk disclosure sections in, these, in the handful of bonds we could lay our hands on, and they mostly say something utterly ridiculous like, we, you, we may or may not be able to go into bankruptcy. We don't know. And, you know. These are bonds that are written up by some of the most expensive law firms in the country. And if there's a lack of clarity, it would suggest basic economic theory would tell us that the lack of clarity is gonna translate into basis points that the tribe is paying. Uh, so why is treasury one might say not putting together a team to fix this. After all, Treasury is willing to put together teams to ameliorate legal uncertainty in the international sovereign debt market. So there are smart people at Treasury. Uh, Presumably, there are just as smart people at the SEC. These are problems that can be ameliorated. All right. I didn't rant, I hope, but I think I did. But I I I have a question here, uh, which relates to our conversations with investors and i think that we will have played a podcast with one of our investor friends on this uh, prior to us posting this podcast and he said he loves tribal bonds and he loves tri- specifically tribal casino bonds and part of the reason he loves tribal casino bonds is that The tribe is generally quite a stable entity. Uh, He was talking about Mohegan uh, gaming and they don't go bankrupt. Uh, At least Mohegan gaming has been quite well run and they pay about 200 basis points more than entities like Caesars that famously went into bankruptcy. And for him, this is great because you know, you're earning so much more, you can feel good about yourself, uh, the, the money is going into development for uh, the tribe, and you're earning uh, for your investors a disproportionately high return. My perspective is, why is the tribe paying so much? This is, we, sh- we shouldn't be paying so much to people, uh, they should not be so happy about the high returns they're getting. And... So I am wondering whether this is something that uh, you have come across that that you know the tribes are paying additional money, and when we're talking about these, you know, transactions for hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a lot of dollars that could go into development.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. One thing about bond financing in particular is it's a lot more public generally than sort of bank financing right there's lots more needs for disclosure and i think some tribal government tribal governments are not terribly trusting of um, american institutions right i mean they've got 200 years of reasons not to be trustful and they may not frankly want to be as forthcoming with their own internal financials and they may not want to share all that information they are also political entities you know, often with elected leaders who, you know, may not want to lay all that stuff out in, in the public record in, in quite the same way that, you know, states and municipal governments do. And so, so, to some degree, that you know keeps them from wanting to be at least in big public bond financing type situations you know I, I i don't know you know me too and mark you both know this it's hard to get the um the offering memos in these case in these deals because nobody wants to share them everybody demands confidentiality and nobody wants to share them because They're private deals basically they aren't big public finances and so part of it is that i will say this i'm sure that anytime a tribe needs money it checks out what the bank rates are and so they look talks to banks and says what you know what kind of deal can you do with me and then they they compare that to what they can get in a in a bond financing and that's how they make their decision and they may do some part of the financing through banks and some part of it through through bonds but um, I can't explain why they would be paying, you know, higher basis points, you know, high, you know, paying more for for their 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 money than than other companies institutions. Other than you know, kind of what we've talked about, which is these uncertainty uncertainties in the in the legal regime.
2: Is there one solution that you think would be most helpful, uh, most of an improvement? Um, you know. I can think of many, including some that would be that would be quite uh, quite radical from the perspective of the federal government, I imagine. But um, is the answer just to equalize the ability to issue tax exempt bonds? I, it, it, it seems like while me too and I are very interested in contract structure, and I, I do think that these the terms of these contracts are really quite interesting and perplexing. They're in some respects kind of a sideshow. Is the is the the inability to issue tax exempt bonds to the same extent as a, a state or municipality the biggest problem here?
1: Perhaps I think that's a big. I think that's a, a live issue. Um, you know, when this when tribes were first sort of authorized to to do issue tax-exempt bonds there was an initial sort of authorization for two billion dollars and I don't know that that's ever actually been extended um to yeah I think it's two was it two trillion maybe it was two trillion dollars I, I um but at any rate there was a limit there was a limit on how much they could do and that frankly that was probably around the you know the 2006-2007 time frame and then we went into you know the the recession um and um, and so interestingly, there, it, it, the take up on on that was not very high for the tax exempt bonds. There have been a lot, a lot of um, financings in the gaming space. And um, it's been for, for for tribes, it's been sort of a process of kind of whack-a-mole, right? There's issues pop up and they 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 tend to address them one by one but one so one issue that came up was regard to the gaming laws there was a bond issuance to the lac de flambeau tribe in wisconsin of 50 million dollars in around 2008 2009 somewhere along in there and um the indenture was found to violate federal gaming laws um and and the reason for that it was I, i can explain it relatively quickly is that a, a tribe can't alienate its gaming operation. It has to be publicly owned by the tribe. And so there was some, and it has to be, it can't be managed by anybody outside the tribe without federal approval. And so there were some provisions in the trust indenture in that um, Lactif Langbo, it was called Lake of the Torches um, Economic Development Corporation, but the, the, the $50 million bond offering there The problem with it was that um, some of the um, provisions on recourse allowed um, investors to take sort of too much control over the casino on default, and so it was found to violate um, federal law and the 50 million dollars had already been paid over and so that spooked a lot of investors ultimately the national indian gaming commission the federal regulatory agency sort of started reviewing these and giving the thumbs up and everybody insisted before closing after that that the NIGC had to had to look at these bond offerings and give the thumbs up before any banker uh, was willing to close on the deal and that sort of you know largely resolved that that problem and they you know lawyers developed Clauses and covenants to put in the documents that prevented the kind of problem that happened in that lake of the torches $50 million financing and, you know, and everybody moved on. Um, And there's now a solution for for the gaming revenue bonds, but the tax exempt bonds area does remain problem and um, I don't believe it's been resolved and um, extending yeah that authority would would make a would make a big difference.
0: So, uh, Kevin, I, I know we're running out of time and I have lot, lots more questions to ask you about. Um, among, among those questions, I don't know if this is something you can answer, but you are a powerful, important dean. So maybe this is in your bailiwick. I'm wondering whether you have a sense of what's going on within the Biden administration with regards to tribal financing, if at all, anything. So for example, when I talk to people involved in the tribal financing, to the extent I can get anybody uh, to talk to me, because you, you, you are right, the whole thing seems shrouded in mystery and intrigue, which of course intrigues people like uh, me and like Mark. More intrigue, we are more interested. So guys, if you who are listening, if you want us to stop investigating this, maybe make more documents available so we get less interested. But, you know, there's basic stuff like the Section 382 of the 1933 Act. I think that that's what municipalities use to issue exempt securities and If you go into the databases, municipalities issue all sorts of scammy looking securities on a daily basis around the country. And my understanding is that tribes don't fit within this. Now, this seems like a really easy fix that the SEC, our friend Gary Gensler, uh, or uh, you know, he's not really a friend, but we have friends at the SEC who, who, who do this kind of work. Uh, they could fix this if they knew about it, but I'm not even sure they know about it. So do you have a sense of whether this is even on the radar or maybe just they're too busy dealing with Ukraine?
1: Well, they've been, uh, you know, you can't, Ukraine, arose recently right a little bit i mean there but there and there's and the economic policy side is different than the domestic you know and the foreign policy side and stuff so so you know it's a great question there have been great strides in the in the biden administration for tribes financially Um, there's been a lot more stimulus Um, being directed towards tribes. With COVID, the notion was, let's direct stimulus to the people hit hardest by COVID, and that turned out to be tribes. Um, So, um, this you know, the early, some of the COVID stimulus money, um, you know, COVID relief and recovery money was directed toward tribes. And just to give you a sense of the difference in focus towards tribes in the Biden administration, The Obama administration was considered the best administration ever for tribes. And really with regard to stimulus money, the main stimulus money in the um, Obama administration was the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act called ARA. And there was $3 billion for tribes in ARA in 2009 or so, 2010, whenever that bill was passed. In the first year of the Biden administration, the Biden administration has devoted about $45 billion, so 15 times what was um, in ARA for tribes. Um, So this $45 billion is in a bunch of different areas for tribes, but there is much more focus on the financial needs of tribes. I'm not specifically aware of discussions around this particular issue, but um you know and congress is you know has been somewhat dysfunctional for for many years now but um so if we need to get you know a statute amended the 1933 act or something like that that's you know that takes that that's hard it's hard to get something through congress but there has been tremendous focus on the financial side one of the um developments is the you know the the uh, federal reserve bank of minneapolis starting the center for indian country development and they're really staffing it up with a lot you know they're hiring they're going to have 20 plus ftes economists and others that are doing work in this area so there's a there's greater attention it just takes time and um, we'll i think we'll see progress
2: well kevin i hope i hope so and i hope that we can get you to come back to uh, tell us about it um, when and if that happens. But um, for now, thank you so much for joining us. We really um, were grateful that we could have you, um, especially we know uh, how busy how busy you are. So thanks a lot. And uh, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you.